Welcome to the Design Thinkers podcast, where we focus on design thinking and its role in some of the biggest issues facing society today. My name is Ben Crisp, and in this podcast, we welcome three exciting guests as we explore the importance of experimentation in business. We are on a quest to find out what do we mean by experiments in business? Why should business leaders care? What does a good business experiment look like? And most practically of all, we're going to discuss how you run effective business experiments. My guests today are well-placed to answer these questions. They are all involved in a new book, The Experimentation Field Book, published by Columbia University Press. Natalie Foley and David Kester are with us today, and they are two of the four co-authors, alongside Professors Jean Leitka and Elizabeth Chen. Natalie is Director at Social Enterprise Startup Opportunity at Work and former CEO at innovation firm Peer Insight, whose specialism is running business experiments. David is the founder of design firm DKNA and the Design Thinkers Academy London. He is the former chief executive of the UK Design Council. His design practice helps businesses define new propositions through market experiments. Joining our two co-authors is Alan Pedlington. Alan is a multi-industry leader of customer experience. He won his spurs at Virgin Atlantic and went on to board-level roles running transformation projects in the transport sector. One of his projects for British train company Southwestern Railway is featured in the book. So welcome Natalie, David and Alan. And before we dive right into the questions that I mentioned at the start of the podcast, David, first, can you just help our listeners understand how all of you are connected? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ben. I mean, in many ways, the sort of common denominator here has been this amazing phenomenon that's called Professor Jean Leitka. She's a US business strategist. She's a business dean. She's an innovation writer. And the idea for this book was hers. But I mean, Natalie, maybe we could start with you. I mean, how did you get involved? I can't even remember from the beginning, but how did you know Jean as well? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to start a little bit further back, only because hopefully it'll inspire others with with the story. And that I, you know, I wasn't born knowing design thinking like no one else is either. Right, you kind of stumble on it and fall in love. But I was a student at the University of Virginia, Darden School of Business, where Jean taught, and I was headed into my second year. And like a lot of folks, maybe in business school or even in business, you know, you're a lot of the cases we were studying was about existing problems, like. Okay, Marriott versus Hilton, you know, how do you compete? Coke versus Pepsi. And to me, these were not the challenges that I saw coming down the road, right, in 2010. And and it was much more about Marriott versus brand new Airbnb. How are you going to compete, right, against against that? And so I signed up for Gene's class on design thinking, had never heard the term, you know, like 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 a lot of, of folks before they discover it, and and was hooked, right? This was a this was a toolkit for solving problems that had not been solved before, right? And not maybe not solved for your team or your organization or, or the world. And that was really intriguing to me. And so I really wanted to learn how to use this skill set just in thinking that this is how, you know, businesses and organizations and social problems and environmental problems we get solved is through these types of, this type of thinking. So uh, I met Tim Ogilvy because he and Gene were writing a book called Design Thinking for Growth, which is specifically for business and managers. And uh, and I met Tim and, and he had found a peer insight and I worked there for 10 years and served in the last four years as a CEO. And our sweet spot 
was this sort of downstream of, of design thinking, right? You've done the due diligence to really understand who you're serving, your customers, your users. You have a few ideas of how that could go. And then a lot of people just stop at that point, right? And we were really covering that gap and learning how to do it as we went, you know, sometimes to get it right, sometimes getting it wrong. So that's where Gene approached Peer Insight and me and Tim and said, hey, I want to write this book on experimentation. This is a miss. This has not been kind of studied before, really thought out in a very easy and approachable way. It's kind of been this magic in the back, right? And it's like, this has to be sort of democratized. So we were like, sign us up. And then two of our cases from Peer Insight are featured in the book, one with Nike and one with the Project Management Institute. So that's my ne- connection with, with Jean. And then of course, to you, David, I met through her. So yeah, it was, it's a s- small world in design thinking, that's for sure. It's funny, isn't it? Because now I realize that how important Jean's role as a teacher is in bringing yeah. people together. Because uh, I met her in New Zealand, both of us speaking at a conference, business conference, but she wrote me into for a teaching for a business case. She wrote up a business case study, which we'll may talk, we may touch on later. And and then we came and talked on the same course. So that's an interesting connection. And I mean, Alan, we got to know each other right in the eye of the pandemic storm. I mean, maybe you can explain a little bit about how we got to know each other. Absolutely. So remembering back to kind of April, May time in in 2020, the world in lockdown, and I was working at a British railway company, Southwestern Railway, who were continuing to run during the pandemic, but obviously with far smaller customer volumes uh, and a frontline workforce that was out having to go to work every day, uh, facing the risks that that COVID provided us all uh, to get over. So I was there trying to think, how do we adapt? How do we learn quickly? I was fortunate that my career started at Virgin Atlantic, where kind of experimentation was part of the DNA and part of the norm. It was actually one of the things that struck me uh, most uh, when I I left Virgin was that it wasn't a part of the norm in every organization, but uh, and that Virgin was perhaps quite unique in that space. And and it shouldn't be, you know, the the lessons that can be learned and and the advantages to business far more transferable than just a, uh, you know, a challenger brand and and a glossy, sexy organization like Virgin Atlantic. And you don't get much more uh, opposite to that than, than a British railway company. But I saw the challenges that we were facing and thought that, you know, connecting with yourself, uh, David, who I'd heard mentioned before by Joe Ferry, who'd been the previous head of design at Virgin Atlantic, and thought, how can you help me to set up from scratch the, the ability to run experiments, to challenge the norm, to test and learn fast, and to fail fast if necessary, and kind of help us face the challenges and, and adapt to uh, the new norm, uh, what life was going to be like post-COVID uh, and during that COVID storm. So it was a very interesting time. There was lots of things going on that we couldn't have predicted. Uh, even as we were doing uh, our experiments, uh, things changed on us. But that was great. That was part of it. And, and that was part of the fun that we had together as we as we learned and, and went on this journey. Well, no doubt we may want to come back to that. But maybe we should just sort of almost reel back because... It sounds like a big topic, but and what do we mean really by experiments in business? You know, there's quite a lot of different terminology that gets banded around here because one moment people are talking about a prototype and they're talking about a trial or a pilot. So Natalie, help me out a little bit. I mean, what, what are we really talking about? Because we, we've just, we've written this book. I mean, what yeah. really is the entry point when we're talking about experiments in business? 
Yeah, it's a good, it's a good point. There's no shortage of jargon, you know, not just with tools, but you know, lean startup and you know, product management, and everybody uses uses experimentation. But how do we really even call it that? To us and how we thought about it with the book was in its simplest form, it's about discipline learning. Um, so even just stripping it away, like we all, we all, you know, fancy ourselves learners uh, and we probably run experiments every day without even knowing it, right? Of like, hey, I'm going to try a different commute home, right? And is is it faster? Is it shorter? That, I mean, that's an experiment. It's not sophisticated. It didn't have to be. But you're saying, but the discipline of it is you're timing it <laughs> and you're naming it of like, I'm going to test these two, right? So in the simplest format, it can be that. And it's a lot like the scientific method we, we all probably got exposed to at some point too of starting off with what do I think is true, your hypothesis, and then running a test to see if it's true. The biggest piece that's hard in that for organizations is that it's not treated, the mindset is that it's not a it's not a hypothesis. It's true. It's fact. Like we came up with it in the boardroom, so it must be a good idea. You know, let's skip over any testing and let's just build this thing, right? It feels good. looks good on the quarterly reports. Everybody likes doing that. We know how to do that, right? Is just make something, build it, right? Build the app, build the whatever. And I think for us, it's just about stopping and saying, hey, this is actually, this is actually a hypothesis. It's our best guess. It's a good guess. Like we're, we're, you know, we're in the realm here, but we don't know it to be true. And so you start to la- label, hey, I have three assumptions. And they're usually things like, does anybody want this? I mean, which seems weird to say out loud, right? And is it, and are we going to be able to deliver it under the amount of money it costs to, to fulfill it? Um, you know, and are, are we pricing it at, uh, over the cost it's going to take to deliver it? And that's the type of thing that you want to run an experiment on that and learn it before with the prototype, which just basically means a, an earlier, lower fidelity, you know, version of what you want to build later. Learn that stuff now before you spend a year. 3 million pounds and and then land with something that's like, oh, now we're learning. Now we're learning because it's real. And then we've already had a lot of sunk cost and it feels like a a, a not fun mistake to make. How does that resonate, David and Alan? I mean, I was going to say, I think there's something in there, which I know we bring out in book, which is about finding those make or break assumptions. If you sort of take everything of an idea then it's sort of like compelling to feel like, okay, well, to test this idea, yeah, I've got to yeah. make it. And that yeah, that's a good point. in itself is a flawed concept, isn't it? Because actually you really want to test the things you don't know, not the things you know. That's, so that's exactly, yeah. You know a bunch of things and you know these bits actually, like we know we can deliver that, we deliver that anyway. Well, right. we don't need to test that bit. So, you know, there's a thing about isolating the things that you don't know and working out what the experiment is that just that needs to do. That, David, that's a great point. And actually, we and we talk about this in the book, but we did this with Nike and we, and we explain in the book, exactly right. Especially if you're building a new service and I know, you know, Alan, this is what, what you and David did. That's a lot of different pieces and a lot of different things to test within that service. You don't want to, I mean, even standing up a full prototype of a service is, is a lot. So with Nike in particular, they um, we helped them set up or test out a shoe subscription service for like eight to 12 year olds. There's a lot of things we were guessing about what, you know, what would go well in that or what we thought this would hang on. But one of the things that we really didn't know and um, is Nike wanted this to be a sustainability play, meaning 
It's a shoe subscription service. Shoes are sent, worn, old shoes are sent back. And, you know, everybody, we all know, right? We, we love the environment, but like, are we always recycling when, we, when we're trying our best to do it? But like, are we actually, is that the behavior we're actually doing? Are the, you know, we turning off all the lights before we leave? So the big this make or break assumption was, will people send back these shoes? You know, we, we hope they will. You kind of think people will, but we all know that what we say versus what we do is really different. And so we isolated this, what people send back. Hadn't even built a service, but we ran a, a simulation where we we went, put on a Nike shirt and went to the, a Nike store. And just whenever somebody was buying a pair of Nike shoes, just you know, nothing to do with our service, we give them a return bag and say, will you return your old shoes? And then waited to see, would they, do, would they do it? How long? Some people were shoving other shoes that they hadn't bought in there and like wrapping it up and sending it. So we learned so much about this. And what we learned was that's not going to be the first thing that people want to do. They're not going to send it back timely. They may not send it back. So we can't hang our hat on this being a big sustainability play because that's that's what we learned in sort of isolating that component, thinking about it from a make or break. And then testing it was easy. I mean, what the cost of that was our time and a couple of mail bags, you know, to get it back. That was it. And could you have learned those things through, say, market research? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can go and see. This is what we talk about a lot in the book is this say versus do. You know, giving is just wildly different. So, I mean, you can you can look all around to see what what uh, secondary research on on it, but giving someone you know, an actual thing to do and then see if they do it is, is nice. And there's so much of that throughout the book. Like what we call them little breadcrumbs, like give people things to do and see what happens. Those are great indicators of whether they're going to change their behavior. And also there's something in there, isn't there, about not just always confirming your own assumptions and biases, exactly, but yeah. actually going out and seeing what really happens because yeah. it, it's very easy to persuade everybody. I don't know whether you feel the yeah. same, Alan. Yeah, and I, I think there's a lot of power in, in going out and running these experiments and finding what doesn't work and seeing how it doesn't work and learning from it on that small scale. And I think there's real power in that, you know, how you come up with those ideas. So I, I definitely agree with the, the point around what people say they will do and then what they actually do. When we were in, in COVID, we, we ran focus groups with customers online and socially distanced and we, we, we ran questionnaires and stuff and, and customers told us that they wanted you know when they came to the, to the station uh, a warm welcome uh, and they wanted the ability to know uh, about local attractions and activities that they could go and make the use of, of their journey from and all of the data strongly suggested that and when we went out and tested it I don't think a single customer actually made use of that facility that we offered um, despite all of the data that we had suggesting that they would and I think that you know, that, that was powerful to bring home that, that you do need to go and test these ideas and it can be on a very small scale to give you a real world experience of what's going on. So it doesn't have to be costly. It definitely doesn't have to delay a process uh, if you're looking to change things and, and, and have to do so quickly, which obviously mm -hmm. during COVID, we, we, it wasn't long term scales. We needed to make decisions uh, rapidly, make changes rapidly to adapt. But the experimentation meant that we invested and rolled out in the right ways. And the, the other thing I just wanted to come in on was that with regards to when, when things work and don't work, it's great. It's very powerful for the culture of an organization, how you come up with the ideas and going out and experimenting on them and seeing what those results are. Organizations are very good at top-down decision-making, and often the solution that comes from the top is different to what 
those at the bottom of an organization are suggesting uh, should be the solution to it. And so being able to test the ideas that come from the bottom up alongside the top down and seeing how they work, one means that you know you get the best solution overall, which is fantastic. It's what every organization wants to do, but it also helps to get buy-in if that idea comes from the opposite end of the organization. So if the people can see that the top-down idea is the right one despite their initial thoughts on it, then you can get buy-in and support and organically it can grow through an organization. And equally, if the idea it isn't right from the top down and those at the bottom have come up with the right solution, it's very powerful to be able to go into a boardroom and say, well, here's, here's the evidence, here's what we did, here's the proof that actually this is where we've got to think about things differently. And running experiments and being able to do that quickly, cheaply, and provide real hard data is is really powerful tool when you're trying to navigate a, a boardroom and a culture change within organizations. I mean, I wanted to build on that because I thought the point that you made there about the amount of time and effort that you need to put in to running an experiment, that's a really important part because a lot of people could think that this is an incredibly difficult, very expensive thing to do. And it I think you'd agree with me, Natalie, that it can be almost the reverse. And then the example that Alan gives, I mean, I remember that, Alan, you and your team had some basic assumptions around some of these ideas, but actually running some workshops with a sort of cross-section of your team, actually, it added a lot of validity to the ideas. They were able to expand on those ideas, put a lot more detail and thought into them because you had in the room, you know, people who worked on the station platform and um, in the ticket offices and so forth. So actually it was a mix of marketing, research, business development and frontline team together. But then the the time that we took between actually the development of an idea and running the experiment. I mean, if my memory serves me right, I think it was no longer than three weeks before we were actually up and running and running a really cheap experiment. But actually we were able to see what was working. And that was when we discovered that, yeah, the whole piece around leisure travel was something to park completely. It wasn't going to work in, in this context. Absolutely. And, you know, I think we ran the the whole program from, initiation to the finish which included running uh, four experiments in different lo- in three different locations across the the southwest of England with you know dozens of, of colleagues involved I think it was, was about 12 weeks from start to finish for the whole thing and that included a, a series of iterations from the initial experiment you know we learned quickly uh, what was working and what wasn't working we redefined the parameters of our experiment and, and we, we went again and um there's nothing that needs to slow down any project or, or, or activity from a business point of view in order to do this. You know, it's not it's not a, a step that if you include it in your business processes are going to delay the change or the benefits that you need to bring. In fact, that you know, the, the buy-in that we saw from, as you say, frontline colleagues who are out there every day uh, facing some of these challenges from customers, from man- middle managers, from, from senior leaders. And I think that the one thing that you needed to ensure of was that everybody was open to what the outcomes were. What you couldn't do, what would have failed, is if the, the business had been wedded to solution X and was trying to use the experimentation to justify it and validate it purely and simply because that's what it wanted to do and was using it almost as a propaganda tool. You had to be open to what the experiments actually told you. 
And, and to Daphne's point earlier, you know, you don't want to invest millions of pounds, hundreds of thousands of pounds, you know, billions of pounds, depending on what your budgets are in things, just because your gut feel tells you it's the correct thing or because the, the customer focus group does, testing it on a small scale, going out there and finding out, does it really work as we expected it to? And then being willing to adapt your plans based on the outputs of those experiments. That's how you bring success to the organization. And that's the power that, that running experiments can bring. I remember that Gene said to me on the outset of run, writing this book, Natalie, that she'd actually done a, a review of the literature out there, academic literature, and it was just a lack of literature on how to run good experiments in business, which is why she felt, look, we need to do it, because mm-hmm. people talk the talk about fail fast and cheap, as you were saying, Alan, but where's the evidence where where can you really see from the business literature this in practice i mean why why is that i mean why why is there this sort of this hole there because it seems intuitive doesn't it but and it almost seems so evident because this is what science is based on is running experiments so you would have thought that it's just in everyone's interest and it's sort of common sense but it, it, it there is a been a gap here is that right i certainly feel that way i mean even hearing alan's story i'm like wow alan is very unique that he was up for thinking in this way right and i think there's so many elements of what the story you just shared alan that you're like okay let's think about what's unique right about what you all the things you just said i mean one i think the discipline to track learning as you go is just often not there or it's hard to sort of track your from to, as we call it. Like you started, we started off thinking this and knowing this, and then we, and we, then we did this. But I think honestly, the, the mindset of this could shift later scares people. It's like, well, what if we learn it's not right? And I think going in again with that mindset, as we were talking about earlier of this is a hypothesis. The failure is in not testing your hypothesis. You wouldn't do that in science, right? So why would you do it in business? And so that's, I think, the piece of me that's just a mindset of like, we could be wrong. It's just usually non-existent, particularly in an organization that's been around a while. That's why startups are naturally better at it. They know they might be wrong. You know, they have a higher chance of that. And so when organizations are trying to do something different, their their core businesses were right. We were, we were look at us. We ran a core business that's making money, right? And then to say, hmm, we might be wrong is, is hard. And especially if you're asking the same person to go to a meeting at 9 a.m. where they're talking about the core business and thinking about it and then switch it over to that too is is pretty hard and then i think there's not like like we've talked about i think that's part of the book is like a step-by-step of do this do that do that i mean a lot of business runs on on step-by-step processes and so again not making it a magical thing that happens in the in the background and the last thing i think is that a lot of times people when they think of testing think of like UAT testing for a product, right? Of like, you know, is getting the bugs out of something and testing in that sort of sense of like, you know, UI, sorry, use use a lot of acronyms, user interface testing, user acceptance testing that happens way down after a product is like, yes, we know that people want this thing. Now we're trying to get the bugs out. That's, I think, what most people lump experimentation and testing in. And so this upstream, it really throws them off. There's just not kind of a place or a person or even where where does it get, get housed in an organization? A lot of places are still figuring out their customer experience team, or is it going to sit in their product team? So even that can be jumbly. 
Natalie, we do highlight some stories in the book, but I mean, you know, you've, you've mentioned Nike. Who do you think is really good at this? Because it, it is fair to say that actually there are some really great examples out there. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think it's it's folks who um, have failed. You know, they, they have a price tag to put on something that didn't work. And that was Nike. CPG, you know, consumer package good. You know, pe- people like Nike who's used to cranking out goods, right, and products are... That's it's a hard world to compete. It's a very commoditized. So they're moving more into services. There's more data there. There's a longer term relationship with customers there. So a lot of folks are moving that, including Nike. So they're dabbling into creating services. Uh, that this was one of them, but they had had, and their their words, a forty nine million dollar mistake on launching a service, no testing, launch, and, and of course they have this brand, right? So they're just like, we'll just market the heck out of it. It'll be great. And it was fine for a year, the marketing worked. And then if a service, it needs to deliver value over time. And it got shut down because it wasn't delivering that, that, um, that service. So they walked in with me like, we don't want to, we don't want to blow another 49 million. I mean, who does? And so I, I, honestly, that's why they kind of were like, now we got to figure out a different way. Clearly we messed up. Now they're not publicizing that, of course, but that's kind of part of it too, is I think honestly, it's orgs who either have an expensive mistake or their business is getting eaten alive by somebody else. And they have a financial pressure to like, you know, we have no no other way to do it. I know that sounds very uninspirational, but I think sometimes the organizations, you need that push to start something. I I mean, I was going going to say then, Natalie, that I think that we see this across different sectors. And Alan, I mean, as someone who worked at Virgin Atlantic, I seem to recall that there were, maybe you don't want to touch on them, but there were some also some very expensive mistakes that were made with some fairly big top-down ideas. And then actually a much more experiment. I mean, I know that Joe Ferry has um, talks through some of this, that they were brilliant. You know, you were brilliant. Virgin Atlantic was fantastic then at constructing um, experiments and running them. And of course, in some ways, we saw that at play with things like the sleep seats and the sort of battle that played out with British Airways. Absolutely. Virgin was a challenger brand. It was a startup and it was very successful at nurturing that culture and that idea well into its 20s and 30s as an organization, which, you know, I think meant that, you know, when I joined, Virgin was just turning 21. And and that idea of going out and doing experiments and testing things, all in pursuit of giving Virgin that edge over its much bigger, better funded uh, rival, everybody was inspired to do so. And nobody wanted to, to do something that was going to harm that. So, you know, going out and testing something on a small scale on a particular route. And then, right, so it works for a day flight, tick. What about a night flight? Let's go and try it on a night flight, right? It works there, tick. What about an extra long flight? Oh, no, it doesn't work there. Right, okay, so we've got to, we've got to adapt it. Um, and we used to run those kind of experiments with, with the, the onboard service on, on an almost periodic basis. Sometimes, you know, when we were developing a new service, we would run 70 or 80 trials if it was a major overhaul that effect impacted the cabin crew and the meal service and the customers and you'd get feedback and you'd adapt and i remember making literally three figures worth of changes from the very first flight that we did to when we rolled it out everywhere this is our new offering to our customers but we saw the benefits in terms of our people bought into what we'd done because we could tell that story and ultimately our customers loved it because we'd already learned all the mistakes on a much smaller more discreet scale 
when we did get those things not quite right, kind of as, as ideas didn't transfer quite as well from the drawing board uh, in Crawley, West Sussex to 35,000 feet in the air flying across the Atlantic. And, and that was the reality of it. But, but you know, as an organisation, that, that was really important to Virgin at that time because it couldn't compete in other areas. Um, obviously, the organisation has developed and it now has the ability to compete in those. And so perhaps it's not as, as important to it as it was. But I still think that, that that spirit is there at Virgin. You take the transition to Southwestern, it never had the need for that spirit. You know, you either take the train or you don't in a lot of places. That is the choice. And so it's not quite got the same burning platform, whereas that COVID provided that opportunity to introduce that kind of thinking and demonstrate the successes uh, that can be driven um, from thinking in that way. And I think that where where does experimentation sit? I think it should sit everywhere because I, I see a massive value in people teams and culture and engagement with the organization through taking this as a process for how you develop ideas, even how you do continuous improvement in your operation or whatever. There, there is no reason why this can't be there. And I think that offers a, a massive win for customer-facing products and also for internal facing services and products as well to make sure that they they really hit home. And you know that I have seen in several different industries now the power that taking that idea and, and running experiments, it allows you to own a narrative and tell a story of how we're engaging with everybody to meet the, the kind of combined objective of delivering for our customers. And if we deliver for our customers, we should be delivering for our business and our shareholders as well. And experimentation is a really powerful tool to, to help that help that happen and to, and to make that journey possible. Two things that Alan just dropped a ton of wisdom. One, I want to talk about the brand and taking risk with the, with the brand. And then want to get back to like using this internally, right? For employee engagement and beyond. From a brand perspective, in one of the things that Nike did was we started this and we tested as a startup. We did not have the Nike brand on it. They were both nervous about being associated their brand with the failure, especially again. And then the second thing is they have they almost get false positives from their brand at this time, right? Of like, oh, people love it because they're like, they love Nike. And so they actually wanted to see if there was enough value in here where someone might enter into this with a startup, then there would be value. And then once we slap that swoosh on there, we'll be good to go. And so I think that's an interesting point that, that you brought up. And then the second one, I think you're so right with, you know, most folks, it's, this is not a, this is not a time where people are staying in organizations for 15 years anymore. Right. And I think what this crew that's coming into the workforce is demanding is more, which is great, is more transparency, which experiments provide, right? What we're doing something new, an ability to take risk, which we all need to be able to do, but do it in a smart, disciplined way where you really learn. Um, it's not like a you drop of, you know, it drops and then it goes up in flames. It's like we're learning as we go and we can shut it down to your point, do a day flight, do a night flight and then stop. But bringing people, it, to me, it democratizes and makes it transparent of, hey, we're trying things out, right? And that's really motivating to people in an organization of, of any ilk, like who you know just started or further down too. And I think doing it internally within the people and culture teams and with engagement and employing, you know, treating it the same way is, I just want to lift at that point. I think it's so, it's, it, it's so helpful. We've designed our internal performance measurement system at Parents because no one liked the one that they had had in any organization before. So we're like, let's design it. Let's, let's do, let's run some experiments. I think it's brilliant. And in fact, I think the thing that people will probably be wondering about if they haven't already bought the book is 
are there a sort of more precise techniques and methods? I mean, is it just run an experiment and do it well? And I think what, one of the things that we brought out in the book, and Natalie, tell me if you agree, is that actually you can pull this apart. You can find that there are actually many different sorts of methods and techniques which you might want to apply to different sorts of experiments. Like, I mean, we we worked with a big multinational, it's a large a luxury goods firm, and they were looking at a whole service piece. And we realized that to test their service ideas, we really didn't need to put those into action immediately. We could identify certain bits and pieces to test. So we used a technique which often gets called Wizard of Oz, so that, in fact, the magic bit could, actually, we could approximate that. We knew we could do it. But we didn't really need to test that. What we needed to do was get some customers in and show them an an experiment with them going through the service. And the little bit of magic that would happen with some technology, we, we, we thought, okay, well, we know we can do that. So we'll set that aside and we'll approximate what that looks like in the test. And there are a number of different approaches that you can use. I just wondered whether you wanted to touch on some of those, Natalie. But I mean, you know, those things like if you are trying to test appetite, you know, you you might do different things. Yeah, David, you you said it it really well. I mean, we've got five different tests in the in experiments that we that we talk about in the book, just as a place, like you said, we we've thrown them out. You know, Alan threw out some, I threw out some in passing, right? But these are all kind of codified in the book, and it and it gives you a step by step way to say, great, if this is my first time running this type of test, here's how to do it. And there's things you can do that are, and they go from easier and cheaper to a little bit harder, a little expensive. And the point is start with the startup, start with the easy, cheap one, right? And see what you learn, right? To go again, going back to Alan's kind of like do do one day flight, right? And one don't be like, okay, we're rolling this out to you know 10 flights this time. That's many reasons that 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 may not be the best, most effective way to learn. One of the tests that we really like is a smoke smoke test. And we I mean David, we did play around a lot with a lot of different names for them. So feel free to, you know, for folks to call them whatever. But this one is more of Put up a little bit of a smoke screen. So for Nike, you know, this is a shoe subscription service for eight to 12 year olds. One on surface level could say there's a lot of benefits to this. First off, for parents, it's pretty miserable to go on a Saturday to the shoe store and like hope you find the one that fits and hope it doesn't take a million hours. And like you got other, maybe one kid's getting the shoes and others are just running around. Okay, great. Benefit number one. Benefit number two, potentially this bring the old shoes back and recycle. So it's people who really care about the fact, Venomate too, you know, the, the kid gets to pick and kind of own their shoe more, more autonomy for that age group. Great. You know, so we have all these benefits where we're like, you can't roll out with eight benefits and you got to understand which one might be the one that's the leading one. This is a very new behavior. And so what's that first, what's that one that's the biggest need? So we ran ad Google ad test on val- on different value props with these different needs, right? Say you know, I'm making them up now because I can't remember. Save the environment, you know. Da, da, da. Don't spend all Saturday at the shoe store. You know, shoe store, and then we would see the behavior of how people would interact with those ads, right? That was an example of a smoke test with the Project Management Institute or PMI. They have a huge they have huge conferences, right? They're a huge aso- association that's global, and so they were having a conference in Dublin. And we tagged along and said, okay, let's, what are some little behavior experiments that we can run with folks? One of them, you know, we had a cognitive walkthrough, which is one of the, 
one of the types and you would go in and say, you would ask somebody to walk through it and give feedback on it. That's a first early prototype. And another one was we had little postcards about each of the new ideas. And we asked people, Hey, if you're interested in this, go back, you know, put this in your bag, all your conference swag. And when you come back, scan it, scan the QR code and, and you can learn more. That's a, does anybody scan the QR code, right? That's something that you could do at a lemonade test, which is more of a kind of a pop-up feel where you can do, you can kind of almost hit multiple tests in one thing, but the book outlines them in a way that's really accessible, particularly for people in the, who are first time experimenters. Obviously people can read the book, so they're going to, hopefully they'll, they'll, they can now, hopefully we've whetted the appetite and, and they can see them. I mean, there are really great templates in their logic models, We've actually shared those logic models just recently with a big NHS hospital that was developing a service so that they've been able to pick the right experiments. It's been very successful for them. So we know they work. Alan, I just wondered, what do you think actually gets in the way of business sort of taking this sort of more scientific approach to running experiments? I mean, what were the obstacles? I mean, you've been on the board, you've heard I'm sure colleagues saying, no, we're not doing that. So what's actually getting in the way? I've heard that once or twice during uh, my career, yes. Um, I think that, to to, to be honest, some of it is based on people's views of leadership. They feel that as as leaders, they should have the answers, provide the answers and follow it, and that it's viewed as somehow weaker if you you need to go and test your ideas and develop them from the ground up as, as, as well as the top down and involve different parties and stuff. Some of it's about... You know, the unknown, especially if you're dealing with finance, if I, go, if, I, if I go off down this path and I don't know the answer, how much is it going to cost me? Where is it going to lead? What's the outcome for that? And that can be, that can be a barrier as, as well. But I think that what, what is, is encouraging is that as we move on, there are more and more individuals and organizations and leaderships that, that are buying into it, that are understanding and having that open bit and can see the value that it brings. And, and as I say, you know, the more we talk about the value that it can bring from a customer proposition point of view, from uh, an employee engagement point of view, from you know uh, just an organisational culture point of view, I think I think is beneficial to, to having people get comfortable with it because for for a lot of people, it's described as, as fluffy. It's this design thinking unknown bubble that's all a bit very nice and it's not hard and fast. And of course, that, that's the whole point of the experimentation in the book is that actually it is very robust. Uh, there is a purpose to it. It can be tracked and the benefits are there and. And so it should satisfy those that are traditionally creative and those that are traditionally more happy with spreadsheets and numbers. The, the benefits to this technique is that everybody can be satisfied that the end results mean something and can see the benefits in, in both the failures and successes that experimentation can bring. I just want to quickly jump in here. It's been a really interesting conversation just to sit back and listen. But going on from what you said, Alan, with different leaders, like what leadership attributes should you look for in a team if you want this kind of experimental culture? I think the really important one is to be open to changing your mind, you know, and being confident that engaging in this way is is a sign of leadership strength. You'll get far more buy-in and belief into what you're trying to do, to the change you're trying to make, to the ultimately that will benefit your customers, your employees and your bottom line. But but it is a brave step because you don't know what's going to happen. You know, you, you may really trumpet idea one and the experiment shows that idea one bombs and that can be embarrassing we have to kind of get over that own personal embarrassment and and just accept that that the experiment has proved what is right for say your customers your people and and, and your business as a whole and i think that that's really the key the key attribute that, that that i would encourage everybody to try and take 
is, is have that. And, you know, if, as the book sets out, you can have confidence that experimentation isn't just a fly-by-night fluffy uh, exercise. There is real business benefit that can be gained. So use that to, to help make those ideas that you champion prove out to be incorrect, uh, less painful. And Natalie, do you have any more tips of what leadership qualities you look for? Yeah, I mean, this sounds maybe boring, but I mean, I think integrity and a good stewardship of the the resources in your organization, right? No, no one wants to be on a team where you like spend all this this sweat and tears over building something, never tested it, right? And then it just no one ever used it. I think about that team at at Nike who worked on on the product on the service that failed. Just for morale purposes, it's like, wow, we did all this and now it's being shut down, right? So, I mean, from even an engagement standpoint, but also a steward of financial resources to to me is if you want to be a prudent, smart leader in this world we're in now, this is a really critical discipline to know and and not one that's earth shattered. I mean, like I said, we've broken it down. It can be done. Uh, It's not something you need to go to off to, to Harvard, you know, to get some credential for a week and then come back. Like this, you can start doing it today and find ways to to be that good steward and 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 bring that discipline to your organization. And David, have you got anything final to add? Yeah, I mean, I think there's something in here about the humility in leadership, which is really about recognizing that you will have enormous amount of knowledge insight, creativity in your organization. And the wonderful thing about taking an experimental approach is that you're going to be tapping into that from your different teams and the different disciplines that you've got. And that will be where a lot of the learning comes from. But that does take an element of humility because you've got to say, well, actually, we're not omniscient leaders. And the collaboration in this context is going to be very, very important because you can't run good experiments without bringing all your teams together because you're going to need marketing and operations and all the different all the different parts of your business actually collaborating to run the good experiment. For anyone interested to find out more about the work at DKNA and the Design Thinkers Academy London, you can reach out or explore our new websites linked in the caption to this podcast. You can also follow us on social media for new content, information on sales and course offers, more podcasts, blogs and downloadable resources. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for another podcast coming soon.